Hello, welcome back to the Africans. This is Okwesi, giving you a quick conca calf. I I have I am speechless. A quick conca calf World Cup qualifying update, where at the end of the year, with six matches to go. The Canadian men's national team sits atop the table for CONCACAF, being the only undefeated team, and after doing something they've never done, ever, or in the country, or haven't done since 2000, which is beat a Mexican side in a competitive match. The final score of that match was Canada 2, Mexico 1. The match took place in the Edmonton Commonwealth Stadium, now affectionately known as the Azteca. We'll play on word for the Azteca there. Oh, I don't know what to... I'm not ready for this. I think... My feeling is this. Ryan Lindsay tweeted this. He said, it's truly astounding that we have two absolutely world-class national soccer teams in this country right now. A reality that felt incredibly distant not that long ago. Get on board. Whatever is coming next is going to be special for the Canadian men's, women's, and ex national team wow with the preview for the window when we looked at the roster me and Alejandro looked at it we talked about it I remember I talked myself up into saying we could get the six points and realistically you know it was the greedy part of me wanted six the realistic part of me said four would be ideal, but I would even accept three. It is remarkable looking at a team like this is. I mean, I think I've tweeted more during this game than I did in other games, which is remarkable. However, one of the tweets I tweeted out here was, I haven't been this excited at a match. And this is true. Since the 2012 Summer Olympics, the London Olympics, when, yeah, when Christine Sinclair scored that hat trick going toe to toe with the women's US national team, where we ultimately lost, I maintain to this day we were robbed. I maintain to this day we were robbed. But that game was an exciting game for me. Because I remember I watched that game with my siblings. And after every Sinclair goal, like we would be so hyped that we would run up the stairs and be like high-fiving the wall and ourselves. And it was just surreal. And then the U.S. would score. We'd be like, oh, okay, we got to calm down. We got to bring that down. And then Sinclair would score again. And it was just up and down the stairs running around. Our parents were just like, ah, what are you doing? <laughs> my mom was there too. My mom would be like, ah, ah, Kwesi, what are you doing? Man, I haven't been ex- that excited since that game in watching the game. Now, 
there have been games that I've watched where I've said, where I've been comfortable with the result. And I think I said that entering this qualification uh, tournament. I'm comfortable with this team because I know how they respond. But it will be interesting to see them respond versus higher types of competition. And barring, truthfully, barring any friendlies in December, the men's national team will have finished the year with only two losses, both at the Gold Cup. The loss to the United States in the group round and then a loss to Mexico. And in reality of both those losses, I felt comfortable with that team because they responded once the adversity hit them. I think that's something I've appreciated about this team as they grow. But you know what? We have to cover all of CONCACAF, and we can we can wax poetic about this team. But what do we say about this game? There's a few observations we we're going to go off. I think the first one being the pitch wasn't as big of a problem. I mean, there was a lot of hype about the snow, the temperature, what that would mean. At the end of the day, it didn't really affect too much. I felt, honestly, the pitch wasn't as big of a factor. I think the cold was more. You know, you could see that when players would hit the, the turf, they were a little bit slower getting up. Everything hurts a little bit more when you're colder. So that wasn't a worrisome. But I think the biggest thing comes to the second observation in the game is, man, these refs. And this is on both sides. <laughs> this isn't all the fouls that were committed against Canada. This isn't the Daniil Henry situation. Let's be honest. CONCACAF refs, I'm not sure if having the crutch of no VAR is putting more pressure on them to try to keep games quote-unquote level, but man, the ref in this game. If we're honest, Daniel Henry should have been thrown out, should have had a red in this game. And there were many other offenses that would have worn and should have warranted cards but the beginning 20 minutes of this game were just like either the ref was trying to establish some sort of precedent which if that's what he was doing took the life out of the match but then once we got to the second half it was just you know what hip check hip check hip check hip check to the back no calls i don't mind if a ref calls the game a certain way but at the end of the day, it really does come down to making sure that a ref maintains that type of a game. And I think that really affect like that bothered me, to be honest. That bothered me. The standard of refing in CONCACAF, I mean, and it's evident when you see people who don't watch CONCACAF are on a consistent basis. 
I was watching it. I, there wasn't much interaction with it, but I saw what's it called? I saw Blake Murphy, who's one of the beat writers for the Raptors at the Athletic. I think he's on the fan now. I'm not sure. Remember, there was a foul that wasn't called where Richie Lai was basically horse collared, didn't go down, tried to run through it, and there was no foul. And his response was, you can horse collar in, in soccer now? And the only response you can put, which I got a few responses from, was, it's CONCACAF, shrug emoji. The consistency from one ref to the other is going to happen, but at least be consistent within your game. If you're going to let ticky-tack things go, let ticky-tack things go. I think my frustration with the refing this match was they were calling everything in the first half and calling nothing in the second half. And from a flow of understanding how a ref's going to call something, that affects everything. Because if so, if something is a foul in the first half and not in the second half, then you start to question the integrity of it. It's like, well, why was it a foul in the first half? If you're trying to get something out, why are we not doing that? Or why are we doing that? These are the questions that, and those are my frustrations with the match overall, like the refing especially. Once the game got into a flow, I think it gets to my third observation, which is for Canada to truly be able to unlock teams, they need to be able to attack down the middle. And watching this match, especially having the speed on the wings. We saw Mexico try to really neutralize that, which left the middle of the pitch open. And this was a type of match where if you had someone attacking down the middle who could really exploit, there are best opportunities up until the goal where Buchanan taking advantage of the middle or Johnson coming down the middle or Laren coming in or Larea Lai cutting inside and moving down the middle or Estacchio or you say a name and the middle was available because we were always fooling everything into the flanks and they had to defend the flanks. That is a threat that they had to honor. But with that being said, it kind of reminds you that having that center attacking threat is important. I didn't wonder if at halftime, if we would adjust and put say, and go more 3-5-2 and either put Davies or maybe Tejon in that central attacking midfield role. And I think that would have been interesting because then he could attack and put pressure on them from the middle. And then you have to choose, are you going to let Tejon attack you on the front foot? Or are you going to try to not have David, Davies or Laren or Lai or Sam Adekubi burn you? that gap was available and it was definitely missing. But I think that would definitely be something I think we need to look to address. I think there is, there are people in the pipeline, there are other players. I think this game could have used an Osorio, but not, I think it could have used an Osorio sometime in the second half, but when and where you would have put him in is the question.
That is the question. But we get to the game as it's flowing, but then we get to the first goal. I think one thing that I've appreciated about this national team is when they score a goal, you know they're trying to get to another two. They get that energy. They get an extra boost of just desire to go get that second or third goal. And you see that just not in all their matches pretty much. Any game that they score one, they're chasing for two and three. That happened in Panama. That happened with El Salvador. Look at the Gold Cup. Look at qualifying. All those aspects. Whenever they got one, they went after it. And in a game like that, it wasn't going to be something pretty. Kudos to Alistair Johnson just pointing the, a shot on target. And Kyle Lahren being ready to take advantage of an opportunity or a rebound if it was there. Man. <laughs> the lineup was interesting. And we didn't talk about it. They did line up in a 3-4-3. And not go dual strikers. But if you're going to go lone striker, I think Kyle Lahren is the choice, period. And I think that's a question that's going to come to Canada for a long time. Can they survive with running a dual striker system or a single striker system? And if they go single striker... Do they have strikers who can operate on an island? Right now, the top three teams in CONCACAF on paper, well, actually, let's go. If you look at the players in the, the top strikers in CONCACAF right now, you can argue two of the top strikers are on the Canadian men's national team, Laren and David. David, however, you know works better in a pairing. Laren does not. Ricardo Pepe, he can operate as a lone striker. Mikel Antonio, we'll get to him, operates as a lone striker. Raul Jimenez operates as a lone striker and is a bit of a 10 as well. So Laren being Johnny on the spot for that just cements him in 90% more of the matchups, more of the lineups that can they can play and Herman can roll out. As long as it's an isolated striker up top, he can drop down and create, but also get back into the play and attack those empty spaces. But in a game like this, it really came down to getting shots on target and hoping for a rebound. And off the turf, kudos to Alistair Johnson, getting that shot on target. And Kyle Aaron, just on the spot, ready to collect that rebound, is just, you're not always going to score the pretty goal. You just sometimes need to score the goal. And kudos to him for being, making a run, running through, <laughs> run through the tape. That was extremely well done. Get to the second half, no changes. Mexico starts to open up. We get him on a set piece. Kyle Laren, and I think the image of this game is Sam Etakubi diving into a snowbank in celebration of Kyle Laren's number two goal. And I think with that goal, he is now tied, Dwayne Desario. 
for the most goals in Canadian history. Let's actually make sure of that. And it's, it's always good to watch and see that, but quite honestly, yeah, and you rewind this year, they have done everything they can to truly be ready to go. Seeing, I'm literally trying to pull up the goal yeah, actually, let's talk about... Yeah, he has tied him with 22 goals and 44 caps. Tesario did it in 81 caps. Now, here's the interesting thing. In fifth place, tied for fifth, is Jonathan David with 18 goals and 24 caps. Tied for seventh is Lucas Cavallini with 16 goals and 28 caps. And in 13th is Junior Hoylet with 39 caps, so the elder statesman of the group. But also more importantly, a hearty congratulation for the man who started, the Besiktas boys, really making history as Atiba does pass Julian de Guzman as the most capped player in Canadian men's soccer history sitting alone at 90 with these two last games here we get the second goal and then we have the opportunity to really go through i think the indecisiveness of some players got us tejan and alfonso had a two-on-one that tejan waited too long and tried to be too cute with we had some other breaks coming through the games got interesting and <laughs> got very knots in our stomach when Mexico was able to score in the 89th minute, causing a fury of defending. And we, it looked like they had tied it, but awesome goalkeeping from Milan Borjan, preserving the 2-1 win. And right now we sit at the top of the table with 16 points, the U.S. with 15, Mexico and Panama with 14. Man, what this means, what this could mean. It's not a gold medal like the women one. Let's, let's acknowledge that. However, it is bringing the sport into the national spotlight. And if Soccer Canada were wise, they would try to. right off the coattails of this and the women's national gold medal and promote, build, get something going. But honestly, to see this program where it is, it is, man. It, so well, I don't talk about my fandom with Canada too much, but my first memory of any Canada football, any Canada soccer that is, is actually the 1999 
Canadian uh, the Women's World Cup. That's the first time I saw Canada as a country doing anything in that World Cup. 1999, we were visiting our family in Ghana. We'd actually seen the national team of Ghana play the Jamaican national team. You'll hear that story in a future pod. But on our way back, uh, we didn't have much to do, so we started watching the Women's World Cup. And that's the first time I saw Canada on the screen. And my fandom from that has been very vain. Probably watch more women's content than men's content. Um, the last time that I really got invested up until before the end of the 2010s was the infamous, <laughs> the infamous 8-1 in Honduras, which for any Canadian football soccer fan is PTSD. <laughs> You mention Honduras, and they will literally just, ooh, I get it. I remember I, well, I was talking about it. I had a Honduran friend that we knew each other. Our parents were friends. And we were talking about the game. We were just like, yeah, we, you know, they, they got one. We're like, okay, it's an early. They'll settle down. And then it was two. It was like early. Okay. And then when the halftime, it's 4-1. Like, okay, we got the one. We're coming back. And it's like, no. So to go from that to in how many years graduating and seeing this team where they are now. Now, let's be honest. Have they qualified for the World Cup yet? No, they haven't. Are there still holes in this team? Yes. I think anywhere where there's age, there is an issue. I think Daniil Henry, for example, plays a role specifically but once he gets a yellow, the same way other teams feel when we have Tejon, Davies, David, Lai, just bombing up the wings, that's how we feel when we see any player with speed who gets isolated against Daniil. Daniil is good in a back four where he doesn't have to cover as much space. He's not the athlete he used to be. Injuries have taken that and time have taken that from him. The second Daniil got that yellow card, it was just he couldn't be as aggressive as he could be, and he was quickly subbed off, and I commend Herdman for doing that because at that point, it's we see what the ineffectiveness of him playing on a yellow is. Get Victoria in, and it was a good tactical move. But to see the team where they were to where they are now, I'm hopeful I feel so pumped that I, I almost wish I knew when the women were playing because I want to just watch more Canada content, period. Just, I want to see the Maple Leaf go. Meh. But Canada say at top of the table right now with six matches to go, the next window, which is important to note, the next window we play Yep. Next window we play in January. It's a January-February window. We play Honduras, the U.S., and El Salvador. So Honduras away, the U.S. at home, El Salvador away. And then we have the March window, which is Costa Rica away, 
Jamaica home and then Panama away. Not until the end of January. So whether they decide to have a camp in December is beyond me. I think it wouldn't be a bad idea to have a camp, especially to get some of the younger players integrated with some of the MLS and North American-based players and get them seeing how they can do. And just so that there are options or getting some of the European-based ones. I wouldn't be opposed to a, a young players camp or a European camp where we got together overseas and played with and just got the team acclimated because we may not have access to all the MLS players at this point as they will be out of season. But wow, I'm just, I'm just happy. Like I could be so pumped and excited, but I am just happy. There's not much I can really say other than I'm just happy that we were able to get that result but more importantly, we were we are headed in the right direction as a program. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the other match I watched today. Today was a great day, by the way, for football. Um, watched African Decision Day qualifiers, Ivory Coast versus Cameroon, Cape Verde versus Nigeria, Tunisia getting a good result, Morocco getting a good result. There was football all day, but wow, this was the type. This is the this day was the equivalent of the early days of the NCAA March Madness tournament, where you, you turn on every channel on the CBS family, and it's like game, 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 game. You could just sit down and just take in games. Now, unfortunately, I was at work, so I couldn't just do that. But you could just sit down and take in games. I did watch another CONCACAF match, and it was the Jamaica-USA match. And I watched up until the end, so I missed the controversial call on, I think it was the Damian Lowe header. But <laughs> I did rant with Alejandro about this. But if I'm an American fan after the USA-Jamaica match, I don't think I should be upset. I can understand why you would be. But you're missing arguably your best winger who should be attacking midfielder, but I digress, in Gio Reyna. You're missing Weston McKinney. You're missing Miles Robinson and John Brooks. And you're playing in Jamaica, and you start off the game well. But on the other side... And the, the way that game went, it reminded me a lot of the Canada-U.S. game, where they're able to finally get a breakthrough, but all it took was one play from a world-class player. And Mikel Antonio Mikel Antonio in this region Here's my controversial statement. If he had a manager who knew what he was doing, Jamaica would not be in sixth or the position that they currently are. Yeah, Jamaica currently sit in sixth with seven points. And here's the reality. With the talent they have, I think COVID definitely put them behind the eight ball. But with the talent that they have, 
they should not be anywhere near where they are. Now, some of that is their fault. Let's be honest. They've had two games where they've missed wide open nets. The Costa Rica game, where Javon East has a tap and then slips and slides and doesn't get a foot on the ball. The USA match in Jamaica, where Bobby Reed has the ball directly in front and just has to power it behind and powers it over the net. That's four points that they are missing. If they had those four points, they're at 11. They are sitting at 11. Yes, there's a lot of woulda, coulda, shouldas there. But those are two cool. Those are two opportunities at the death. If I'm an American fan, I'm not mad at Greg because a world-class player put the team on his back and other players started to step up in ability. And plus, when the substitutions were made for Jamaica, they actually put in their other quality players. Nothing against you, Kyle Walker. You're, you're a good player. And many people rate you in Jamaica. But between you or Ravel Morrison, let's be honest, it's just always Ravel Morrison. If it's between Kyle Walker and Ravel, it's always Ravel. When Ravel stepped on it, it made sense. Why is Jamaica playing a retired footballer who is now a dance hall musician in their as their central defensive midfield when they have a player who is currently playing at a club who, by the way, the club that they're playing, he's playing at, is not a rough team. And Anthony Grant came from the Chelsea Academy. He's not a terrible player. And he brings that level of calm and stability to that midfield. It was disjointed sometimes, but you don't. I think if you're Mexico, I'm sorry, if you're Jamaica, you look at this last window and you are angry at your entire campaign so far. Because you have these players and you haven't used them properly. And you weren't, you haven't used them until they were literally forced to imagine that imagine if like canada with davies refused to play him on the wing they always played him as a center back imagine that imagine playing jonathan david as a as a winger even though like imagine that that's how jamaican fans will feel i think if you're american watching the u.s jamaican match you got away with a point. There are opportunities both sides, but the clear ones, that is it. And I think if you're Jamaica, you're in a tough spot because what do you decide to do? Do you try to play out the string to try to qualify still? That will require having a team that is well-organized like Panama slip up or a team like Canada slip up or a team like Mexico to slip up, or a team like the U.S. to slip up. I think Jamaica has the talent, had the talent to perform so much better. I think their coaching and their federation let them down. Speaking of Panama, no lead is safe against them, apparently. So there's that. They 
are looking very nice and very organized. I think they just can't have a three-game window. That will be their downside. And look at that. They played Canada at, in a three-game window, the last game of the March window. Because there's an end-of-January window, and then there's an end-of-March window. So really, yeah, December and March are going to be free. We'll see some camps and whatnot go through. But yeah, both groups are looking interesting. And I think both, I think it'll be very interesting. The group has have separated, which is great for the top three and the bottom three. But now it's because everyone has come back down to earth. I think this was the question we were talking about. Is it better to have Mexico run away with the group when they could or not? I don't think Canada will be able to run away. But you want to at least get the top three clear of that fourth place spot so you can breathe. Right now, one win and you go from, if everyone, if one of these teams loses, they are in fourth. If the remaining teams win, play their games, the other teams, one team loses and they're in fourth. Because there's only two points between first and fourth. It will be interesting but man, what a time. What a year for Canada soccer. The women with their gold medal. The men ending the year, only two losses, atop the group for qualifying for the first World Cup since 1986. Just waiting for that celebration tour to continue. No shade intended, but shade directed. Man, what a time. This program is heading somewhere, and with the youth coming, looking forward to it. We'll have a more in-depth recap, but I wanted to put something up here tonight just so that you had a few of my thoughts, and we'll have a few more of our thoughts as the week goes on. Looking forward to hearing from you. Thank you guys for taking the content. Find us again on Twitter. Email us. Thank you for supporting us so far. Thank you for joining us for this ride. We can't wait to see where it takes us. Bye for now.